Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. And whether you've tuned in to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day, you are in the right place. My guest this episode is a former D1 athlete himself running track and cross country at Mississippi State University. Currently, he is the sports psychologist at the University of Arizona and a certified mental performance consultant. He's also the owner of Clark Performance Consulting. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, Dr. Mike Clark. doing today doing great how are you i'm well i'm excited to have you have you share a little bit about yourself and what you do and i I guess to start i know you were a former uh, college athlete yourself um give us a little recap of how you went from college athlete to now what it is you do now working with athletes in, in sports psych yeah so like you mentioned i ran track and cross country at mississippi state uh for my four years and i really enjoyed running and i still do and I enjoyed competing at a high level, and yet it, I didn't realize that there were so many resources available, like out there. Um, what's what's wild is even when you compete at you know a college level, a pro level, even a, at the high school level, so often there are things outside of your own like department that are available uh, that you just don't sometimes reach out to or know. So. That was a little bit of the case, but also sports psych wasn't a huge, um, there wasn't a big movement yet toward it. And so I remember getting to about junior year of college and thinking, okay, I need to either figure out an internship or a job or go to grad school. And I didn't like a lot of things, um, (laughs) but I did like psychology and particularly what made people like make certain decisions and yeah what led into high performance and I liked sport. And so really I talked to my uh, track and field director, Al Schmidt, and he was connected with Rick McGuire from past coaching days. And Rick was at Mizzou. Cool. And, you know, I, I learned that sports psychology was a thing at that point. So I mean, there's probably a ton of cool one-off experiences and things between then and where I am now, but I would say just getting switched on to the idea that even though we didn't have one um, at, at, in the department at the time, yeah. didn't mean that couldn't still learn about it and, and you know go down that path. So that I think those are the early days. Yeah, um, you know, you touched on I think those early days from your you know, what you do now. I, I guess one question I wanted to ask is is how far have we come? I know when I was a student athlete, you know, twenty some years ago, <laughs> uh, you know. Also didn't really know much about sports psych, didn't really have to, if there were those races, didn't really know around where to find them. Um, but h- how far have we come in and say, yeah, 20 years or so um, when it comes to sports psych? I would say a far way, you know, of course there's still growth to happen in our field, but yeah, like you mentioned, I mean, it was only 10 years ago that I, I was actually, that's wow. That's wild. 10 years ago, almost to the day, probably. <laughs> uh, <laughs> When I learned about sports psych and yeah, a, a power five SEC athletics department, track or not track, you know, like it could have been football, could have been baseball. Yep. There still wasn't someone on staff. And so what's wild is once I was at Mizzou, 
Rick said, Hey, you know, I, I see you're totally switched on to this stuff. You should go and get a PhD. I was like, uh, sounds horrible. I don't know. And he was like, and it should be clinical. And I was even more perplexed because he was not a, a clinically licensed practitioner. And so I said, why? And he said, well, the NC2A is about to pass a mandate requiring all at least power five schools to have access to uh, a mental health sports psych person um, right. within the department or on campus. So there are going to be a boom of jobs by the time you graduate. It's a little far-fetched. It was a little hard to believe, but um, he was right. And when that mandate hit, then departments were scrambling for people. And I think that was a really nice stimulus for, for creating positions and thus creating resources. And at the same time, it was clinical heavy. It wasn't mental performance heavy. And that continues to be an area of our field that um, we we talk about a lot and how do we create positions for mental performance only people, clinical people only, duly accredited or licensed people, sure. um, which is kind of answering maybe part two or we have we come a long way? Yes. And yet there there's still so much growth to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think um you know, that was kind of where I was gonna go with the next question is is you know, where are we going? I think we've seen um, you know, like you said in athletic departments at larger schools, you know, we've got these teams of performance coaches, certified mental performance, sports psychologists, um, at some smaller schools, um, often is not the case. Um, and, you know, some experiences where, you know, an athletic department of 400 to 500 kids that access is limited to one person, 20 hours a week, um, which is, is a huge challenge. Um, what do you, what can schools maybe that are due to budgets and other constraints and, and, things in place, what are the things that maybe those coaching or those staffs or athletic departments can do to leverage the resources they do have to, to help their kids in this area? It's a great question. And I don't know that there's one answer, but the more I've reflected on it and spoken with colleagues, the more I've understood there are more models than just hiring a big staff and having it all internal. Um, even at a bigger school like Arizona, well, we have now four uh, full-time mental health, mental performance people on staff. We still refer to the community um, quite often. And really that's to meet the the student athlete with the representation that they're asking for yeah. that we may or may not have on staff. Sure. So one model is sure, referring to the community, but that costs a lot of money. It usually costs more money than actually having a full-time provider on yeah. staff. So that doesn't really answer it, but that's one way. Um, sometimes you can, you can have you know, people on retainer. So it, it's a win-win for the, you know, practitioner sure, sure. and the department. Um, I've, I've seen other programs, big schools and small schools go the route of jumping on these kind of startup companies, so to speak. And, and I don't mean to demean them in any way. They're probably like full on crushing it three years later, but <laughs> you know, yeah. things like they're, they're, and I don't want to name drop too many because I'm not totally sure what they do but right. you'll see these these companies form where they will have a lot of mental performance people on staff and they may have a, a number of licensed people on staff even though they, so they may live in Missouri but they're licensed in multiple states right. um jumping on and having a partnership with some of these companies might be the way to go for smaller schools um no doubt but that's only answering the resource question i think right. the greater 
the, the greater question is how do we educate coaches and administration on how to create environments that are more conducive to well-being yeah. and high performance at the same time. Um, but it's not to say that coaches don't know how to do this, but there's so there's so much on the college coaches plate nowadays mm-hmm. that their attention is drawn drawn in every other direction. Yeah. And so to have to have that be part of the conversation at the maybe administrative and and head coach level of departments is also another way because really improving or even preventing mental health concerns from from snowballing isn't just the job of the therapist it it can be done by a mental performance person it can be done by a strength coach a coach um anyone that's informed on how to to meet someone where they are and to identify early signs so i think that's really the way to go but it's nuanced and i I think yeah. it's complicated. You said there's not not a, a single answer we can point to, but uh, no, a, a lot of great ideas and suggestions and options there. Um, my experience with, with some college student athletes in being involved with teams, and I'm more of a, a teacher of mental skills, not a, a clinician, just more of a, mm-hmm. a pro, proactive kind of teacher. Um, yeah. I felt kids were very hungry to learn, even creating volunteer time out of their NCAA hours. If you created the space for them to come learn, and grow, um, they were really more than willing to do so. And, and kind of in that process, I also learned that a lot of times um, when it came to mental skills and sports psychology, uh, often they were more curious of how do they shape these things to their life so yeah. that life was better, so that performance could be better. Um, instead of just, you know, I'm not mentally frustrated at practice, but these frustrations from school, parents, family, it, it's the the whole mix what do you see is often that kind of balance between more of the, you know, acute, you're an athlete, typical things to work on versus this is not acute. We need to go to more of a clinician route. I think the, the notion that when we support the athlete outside of their performance environment, that frees them up to perform better. I think that notion is a really good one. I also find myself hanging out in that space probably a majority of the time, at least early on, you know, because there there are instances when uh, there is a, an acute mental health concern and that student athlete is connected with myself or my staff or whoever. Um, and I think that's how the picture is painted with student athlete mental health. A lot of times there's like, oh, student athletes are so depressed or you know, they, they're really struggling in such a massive way mm-hmm. when, when talking about mental health. And yet my experience has been that many more of the common concerns end up being adjustment related, relationship related. How, I, how do I balance the the stress of life, the stress of school, what they aren't saying, but also the just general physical and emotional maturation that happens still from sometimes 17 to 25. I mean, really, it's not 18 to 22 anymore. Like student athletes are coming in early and they're staying for a longer time. Yeah. And so all of those dynamics play a huge role. And so it's hard for me to put a statistic on it, but I would say that you're right on it. When we can help a student athlete outside of their sport environment, that that's good in itself. And they're going to be more freed up to perform better. For sure. When, um, your role at Arizona with, you know, your staff, um, what is a, a typical week or, or day kind of, what does it, what does it look like? And 
how your schedule helps support the student athletes. Yeah. Well, so I really like the second part of that question. Like how does my schedule support them? Because that's what we'd really try to do at Arizona. We aim for preventative mental health practices, things like that, almost more than the responsive stuff. So I, I, I will caveat with that. And my second caveat is I'm sure you hear this every time. Every week is different. Every day is different. <laughs> sure. Um, I will say though, that the, the mornings are spent primarily in, in one-on-one individual therapy or mental skills coaching in the office, 30 minutes, 60 minutes, confidential stuff. The bread and butter of, of individual work happens in the morning, I think. Yeah. Uh, midday. So maybe like 11 to one, most days I have a high performance team meeting or an interdisciplinary sports med staff meeting. So we have uh, these teams in place that have some a representative a representative from every domain. So uh, usually a physician, athletic trainer, psych, nutrition, sometimes strength coaches in there, sometimes not, sometimes academics is in there, sometimes not, yeah. just depending on the setup in the team. Um, and these, these are really designed to support the student athlete and support the coaches who are supporting the student athlete. Yeah. When the coaches are in those meetings, it's not, there's nothing, you know, um, there's no PHI that's shared and, and HIPAA is upheld and, and all of its right. great, horrible regard. Um, and, but, but there are themes that are supported in those, those meetings. For instance, um, I, I travel with some of our teams and maybe I myself have realized, okay, we, we just got back at 3 a.m. on Monday morning. Um, I'm still at the office at, at eight or nine, but the student athletes are doing what they need to do. And then maybe they have an off day that day, then a regular practice Tuesday, maybe pre-meet Wednesday, then another competition Thursday, flash forward the following week, the theme that I might share with coaches, hey, we've got a lot of tired, tired people on this roster. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I've got a bunch of people in my office saying that they're feeling burned out and stressed. They're feeling the pressure and it's only halfway through. How do we want to, how do we want to manage this? Because the schedule can't be changed. And so those, those types of things happen sure. usually midday, maybe some more individual stuff in the afternoon, but that's when a lot of sport practices happen. So I really try to be accessible I try to float in and out of stuff like that. Um, and that's maybe like a typical week. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, I wanted to jump back to your PhD mm -hmm. uh, because you did your dissertation on something that I struggled with uh, after my college career, but uh, that athlete transition. Um, I, I think it's, uh, I struggled with that. I found a great job with the Chicago White Sox working on the business side. I was still in sports. I thought it was cool. I thought it would, you know, I'm, I'm on the part of this team and this organization. Yeah. And then, you know, still when I went and got on the train at the end of the day to go home, no one told me good game, good day <laughs> or anything like that. Um, and so I think I struggled with a little bit of, of that transition from being an athlete and maybe foolishly thinking that being involved in sports somehow would, supplement that experience um where really it was just the business was sports it was still you know a, a different dynamic but i struggled with that and i think yeah. um uh opening up i think it was hard for me but then i went i literally remember going in search of other athletes that i could find this in common with you know and this was 2008 2009 and i remember i found a 
lineman from Michigan who was very open about that. His name was Will Hinniger, I think. And that dude just made me feel a lot better about myself that I wasn't alone in this feeling. But what are some of the big takeaways that you you got from that? You've done your homework. That's uh, that's impressive that you you pulled up the dissertation here. So I'll, <laughs> I'll do my uh, due diligence to remember. It's been a few years, but the there are a few major takeaways that I still I still think about and talk about today. And the project was really trying to to explore the relationship between the values people hold, the like core belief, core values, mm-hmm. um, and how those those shape out in the workplace and and the influence that that may have on mental health. And so often in, in psych research, we look at dysfunction, not inherently a bad thing. It's, it's a pain point. It's yeah. really where our field was born from. Hey, something's going on. How can we better understand it so that we treat it or prevent it? So, so no, no real slight there. But what I wanted to do was look at an adaptive uh, population or a population that didn't report struggling with significant mental health concerns to see what themes were present there. And could that be generalized? Could that be in some way implemented earlier in the process? And so really it's interesting is it was a a quantitative study. So just a big assessment battery that folks filled out. Uh, I was looking for 300 people uh, for, for my, to actually analyze the data. Mm -hmm. It took just over 3,000 people starting the survey to get 300 who reported that they haven't experienced significant mental health concerns in the past two years. So mm. that that that's not even like an analysis that I ran. That's just the, the straight up data collection, right? Yeah. That was totally eye-opening to me. Um, the parameters were really tight. It was, I wanted folks who had graduated I guess it might, must have been maybe in 2017, 2018. And then I was assessing, I was getting the data in like 2020. And so really what I was saying was in, in these rule out questions, you know, if you've had significant self-reported or diagnosed significant mental health concerns since graduating, I, I, you know, you're, you're out of the study yeah. um, and they didn't, maybe they're still compensated effectively and all that good stuff, but it, 10% who started made it to the end to say, yep, here we are. And in further looking at the data, it wasn't even a, Hey, I, I got halfway and I quit or I Christmas treated. It was really, that was the question that dumped. I, I would have been, I would have been yeah. out. Right. <laughs> I would have been out. Yeah. yeah. Well, exactly. You know, and, and so would have most people, I mean, nine to nine out of 10. And so that was, that stuck out to me, but then what did we find? Well, the, the, the good thing my advising, you know, panel liked and the thing that I liked. And now the thing we can talk about is that we really did find that uh, a vocational psychology term called correspondence mm-hmm. did moderate the relationship between uh, student athlete or former student athlete mental health and what they report today. Said in a different way, correspondence is do your core values align with what's needed in the workplace. Mm. And when you do find that fit or correspondence, that truly does influence the relationship that you have with work and your transition. And to me, that was such a relieving thing to find. And then also something that 
at Arizona and at other places that I consult with, it's like, hey, what can we put in place before the student athlete graduates so they can better understand their values, so they can better understand what's kind of going on this next step so that hopefully, fingers crossed, nine out of 10 becomes eight out of 10 or seven out of 10. Sure. Um, I know my experience in um, eventually one thing that did help me was uh, I went to therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember having a moment with our HR lady and being an ex-football player and raised in some machismo environments at times. Uh, I remember her saying, you know, suggestion I should do this. And uh, I said, I remember telling her, I don't want to go sit in a stranger's office and cry about my stuff. Yeah. And she's like, well, I'm kind of a stranger and that's what you're doing right now. <laughs> and she was a, a wise <laughs> Chicago woman and she kind of, yeah called me out on that and said, why don't you go give it a try? Mm-hmm. And I think that was intimidating, but, you know, to kind of shell that, you know, for me, it was six good months of really learning about why I was feeling the way I was and what experiences had created that and behaviors that I had changed. And um, I'd gotten away from a lot of healthy athletic behaviors that I did as an athlete and yeah. still was expecting healthy athletic results, <laughs> things <laughs> like that. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, so, but it was that, I think stigma, you know, I was so hesitant and afraid to to go talk to someone. Um, you know, what would you tell people or athletes or what do you say to maybe an athlete that maybe feels that same way or, you know, I don't need to talk about this or that's, that's, that's not for me. I'm supposed to hold it in and keep it together. Um, mm-hmm. What do you tell young people? Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate you sharing that. I And I'll answer that. But what I, I have a question for you, sure, you know, sure. It, dish it back if you will um you mentioned that the hr person you were chatting with was you know had had some strong influence in you going what what made you stay um i was curious to Mm. figure out why i was feeling so different yeah and i think that was a pain point I mean, I can get emotional a little bit, but, uh, yeah. yeah, I think it, yeah, it was, I was curious. I was still like, not myself. Mm-hmm. No. And I, and I wanted to get to the bottom of it for sure. No. And and I appreciate your disclosure here. <laughs> yeah. Really the, the curiosity part to me is massive. And what's amazing is that as athletes, we were curious or maybe we still are curious for sure. And, and yet Oftentimes, I think it's not spoken to as curiosity. It's spoken to as like improvement or, mm. you know, uh, reflect on on what you're not doing well and, and yeah. fix it, and change it. And sure, I mean, it, it, that's fine. And that can be helpful in, in chaotic environments. But really, through that process, we are being curious. So I don't know. To me, that makes perfect sense. And well, listen, I think as an athlete, I was always curious how do I get better curious how do I eat curious how do I recover and then all of a sudden I was curious of how to get back to feeling better um yeah but I think of you know that was you know one of the the main things I I just wanted to feel more like myself and perform at a higher level and whatever was going on was being a detriment to to me and my relationships as well so mm-hmm. um I was glad yeah. I took that step um it was super helpful for me and to be able to talk about it is I think helpful for others, but, um, what, um, sorry, as we put you on the spot to relive my traumas, um, <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Uh, 
with your Clark performance consulting, you know, with Arizona, tell us a little bit more about kind of what the other things you do um, when it comes to your performance consulting. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's a, that's been kind of a fun and exciting um, venture. We're going on about five years now, which is a little while to, to think about uh, being in kind of on my own and in private practice while also doing internship and residency and all of the other stuff. Um, so, you know, CPC was born out of this need to legally and ethically like take people's money and pay taxes on it. Um, and I'm, I'm really, I'm really blunt about saying that because I was like a second or third year doc student when I was actually just spending time with family before heading down to IMG Academy for a summer internship. And I got a phone call out of the blue and this guy said, Hey, um, I'm, you know, longtime friends with, uh, who ended up being my best man's dad. Okay. Um, yeah. And he said, Hey, he, he says, you're like a sports psych guy. Um, and I'm so glad I said that because at the time, like as a doc student, I wasn't a sports psychologist. So it's like, am I a sports psych guy? Yeah. 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 That's fair. I, I have almost all my CPC hours and I, I do this kind of, um, and he said, Hey, so I've, I've got a, I've got a son who, and then boom, there's like your, the typical thing that comes in. Hey, I've got a high school student athlete or my son or my daughter there. And then put in high functioning, whatever it might be. Uh, they're really motivated and then enter and yet they're struggling. And that, that seems to be the blueprint for most people who I work with mm-hmm. um, and, and how they get connected. So it was one of those things I said, and and I became a a business owner, I you know that 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 afternoon. But it was like, well, I'm leaving for the summer internship. This was 20, I don't even know, 17, 18, pre-COVID. So like Zoom and it was actually big. Skype was bigger back. Oh yeah, then. yeah, yep. yeah, right. Yeah. Um. And so I was like, well, hey, I'm about to be gone for the next two and a half months. Um. Could I give you a call back in the fall and? They're like, absolutely no problem. In today's world, that just like wouldn't fly. They'd be like, can't you like get on a FaceTime like tonight? Right. <laughs> um, and and so that that's why I say I needed to to create a company because I I knew that I wanted to do the work and I wanted to do it right. Um, flash forward, now it it's grown into something that's a little bit, I think, more nuanced because I was at Oklahoma before this for for my internship. Now I'm at Arizona and um, my role at Arizona takes uh, much of my time and emotional energy. And yet I still am able to work with families I've worked with for some of them, like four years now. Um, There are some professional athletes I work with connected with USA Cycling. And I also uh, work with founders and executives uh, through a couple different platforms. And so that work has, has been totally different it's been really enjoyable because you're still having the found like the fun fundamental or foundational, like mental skill stuff, the lifestyle wellness stuff. And yet the person is saying, well, I'm creating this app that, you know, I just sold for enter some huge amount of money. And yet I'm feeling really dejected. And I, Mm. now I don't know what to do and I'm lost and I, I can't focus. And it's really similar to, the softball player, the swimmer, the football player, whoever that comes into your office at Arizona and says the same thing. So yeah. it has really kept this fun for me and um, also challenges me to like 
really no concepts because if it's easy, I think when, when you work in the same sport all the time, doing the mm-hmm. same stuff to get really kind of stagnant. Sure. Sure. Um, so we kind of a couple more questions. Uh, you've been on like you, IMG, Oklahoma, Arizona, Mizzou. You've been on a lot of campuses over the, the past decade or so. Um, what is it that you still see? Obviously, it's usually not in the facilities, um, but what is the student athlete experience? What do we still need to help close that gap to make the student athlete experience better holistically, mm. not with NIL, not with things, but you know, mm-hmm. for the holistic human being that steps into that student athlete role, what, what gaps do we still need to close? Hmm. You know, I think the, the whole, and I'm speaking generally here, but many, many coaches and programs and departments do a really nice job of onboarding student athletes. And that's bringing excitement, um, all the way from like the the selling the hey you're in the right place and and you're already our family kind of verbiage all the way to the other end of the spectrum of here's a really in-depth physical um you know you're going to see your the optometrist and the psych and the nutrition and and everyone right when you get on uh campus i think we do a nice job onboarding i think we do a nice job and, and again, this is this is generally speaking. Sure, I think we do sure. a nice job of creating opportunity and resources. Um, I think many utilize resources in a in, in a fairly efficient way. The more I'm reflect, reflecting out loud, and kind of the thing I've been thinking about more lately is how do we close up seasons or years in in a way that feels like it honors that three month, yeah. 12 month process. Um, that, that's kind of where my mind goes sure. no, I like that. first. Yeah. No, I like that. I think there's some closure. Yeah. There's some good, a lot of good things to be had there. Um, last question. When you think about your work and thank you for joining us and doing all the work you do. Um, what brings you the most joy in your work and what brings you hope? to stay doing the work. Mm-hmm. I feel a great sense of fulfillment when someone takes the strength to be vulnerable and forthcoming about something that's going on, works through it, and then sees the growth happen. And really, it it's those three ingredients to me that leads to the fulfillment piece. Sometimes the outcome is just Hey, um, I like was super connected with my friends this week and I got out of my dorm or it could be th- those moments that it was a, a routine pop-up that they were totally locked in on, caught, got off the field on a bases loaded three, two kind of situation, knowing that they've struggled even to get out of bed and putting on the cleats that day was the hardest thing. And yet knowing that the journey they've gone through that to me is is really just pure in my mind and um, priceless in a lot of ways and that just brings me joy and fulfillment no doubt the hope is (laughs) little moments i think it's hard to quantify but you'll see 
like in my mind, I'm, I'm working an intervention strategy or a theory, and maybe I'm wondering, where's this going to go? And then the athlete says something like, you know what? Actually, yeah. I think that just makes a lot of sense. Like, let's give it a go. I don't know if it'll work either. And you're like, sweet. You know, like you have given me hope just like maybe I'm providing for them at times. Um, so I think I think the magic happens in the little moments and we need to keep an eye out for that. Um, yeah. Is it, man, the, the world of college and pro sport, it just doesn't sleep. So it could be hard to miss those things. For sure. Um, little moments. If I gave you a time machine and one little moment to go mm. visit teenage Mike and give yourself a little piece of advice or maybe some of the sports psychology you didn't know back then, um, what's what surfaces up that you'd want to tell your teenage self? Mm. That's good. That's really good. Um, my initial instinct was to just say, hey, it's hard, but keep showing up. But I was doing that. So that's not a fair answer. You know, I, I I didn't need someone to tell me that. What really surfaced for me and to share it, to be a little vulnerable, I think is to, would be to, to be more open to people who were probably wanting to help me. Um, I think, I think about now I have a great relationship with the girls cross country um, coach at my old school, John Barnes. And he was someone who, as I reflect, was like always in my corner and would have chatted with me about anything, you know, and and there were there were a number of things that, you know, happened in my own personal life in high school that were hard to manage, just like most people deal with. And I was shut off to people like him or teachers, um, other coaches from other sports, people who I think wanted to help, but I got really tunnel visioned and just thought they're not my coach. They don't know me. They're not my like close teammate or friend. So, so kind of screw it kind of thing. So yeah, thinking back now, I think I could have, I could have benefited from, from that. And yeah, I'm glad you asked that. It's a, that's a newer reflection, I think for me. Appreciate it. Well, appreciate you being vulnerable and, and, yeah. sharing what surfaces and uh, I greatly appreciate you joining the podcast and uh, sharing all, all these great little insights and wisdom. Appreciate it. No, you're very welcome. And, and I, I want to go back just for a second, just, just for a 30 second, because I never answered your question of what do I tell the person who's reluctant to seek help? And it depends how, how much time I have with them. If I, if it's at practice on the sideline, it might be, Hey, doesn't happen. It doesn't have to happen today or tomorrow, but you know, why, why don't I, why don't I find you in three days? And maybe it's just starting the conversation. Then if I have a little bit more time, I do like to say things like it doesn't have to be me and it doesn't have to be therapy, right? Like who, who's in your corner, who's out there. And it might be a a community leader. It might be someone from a faith or spiritual based institution. It, It may be another campus resource. It might be a coach. It might be a friend. It might be an outside therapist, might be a mental performance coach. Like to me, it's about connecting people with the resources that they actually need, not pumping my agenda of mental health or therapy. And I'd be remiss if I I didn't circle back to say that because the help seeking thing has really improved over the past one or two decades. Um, But I think as, as 
practitioners, as coaches, as leaders, we need to remember that it's not just making a referral, but it might be about connecting them with something that's a little bit more impactful.